Hello, I'm Michael O'Toole, crime correspondent with the Irish Daily Star. Welcome to the second instalment of our special podcast examining the trial of Jerry Hutch. Now, as you know, on Tuesday, Mr Hutch's trial opened in the non-jury special criminal court. He stands accused of the February 2016 murder of David Byrne. That murder took place at the Regency Airport Hotel in North Central Dublin. Mr Hutch appeared at the special yesterday. He was arraigned, in other words, the charge was formally put to him and he said he was not guilty, so the trial is underway. Two other men, Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy, are on trial with Mr Hutch. They are charged with facilitating a crime gang to carry out the murder by providing a car. Both men, like Mr Hutch, have uh, said they are not guilty, so the trial is underway. So the trial started yesterday. Um, Paul Paul Healy, the chief reporter with the Star, and I were at the, the case yesterday. Paul was there today. I wasn't there today. So I'm going to be asking Paul about the evidence that was heard today. Hello, Paul. Well, Michael. So, Paul, I understand that one of the first witnesses in today's case was a man whom you and I would both know, Colin O'Reardon, who's a very experienced uh, press photographer at the time of the shooting. In February 2016, he would have been a staff photographer for independent news and media. What was his evidence? What was the context of his evidence? Yeah, so as you mentioned, we know Colin well, uh, and he was the first witness to be called uh, before the trial today. So the basis of his evidence is that he, that he was there at the Regency Hotel. Uh, he was there to cover an event um, for the for the Irish Independent. It was a boxing weigh-in event, and they were there to discreetly take. He was there to discreetly take photographs of individuals of interest um, uh, at this weigh-in event. And we know uh, that one of those individuals they were looking for was Daniel Kinahan. And this is the first time actually today that his name was mentioned in the court. Uh, That's because uh, the journalist Robin Schiller, who was also at the Regency Hotel with Colin, uh, he he alerted him to the fact that he'd seen Daniel Kinahan in the hotel. So Colin was there to discreetly take photographs, as I mentioned, and Robin was there kind of watching the goings on as well. So all of that was mentioned in court. Um, so Colin was was telling how he didn't bring his camera equipment, he brought his phone and he made his way, eventually made his way out to the front steps of the Regency Hotel. So just to contextualise, obviously we would work closely with photographers in the star and they have camera gear and on many occasions their cameras stick out like a sore thumb really. So sometimes we would ask them just leave your camera gear in the car and use your camera phone because it's much less it's much more unobtrusive and you, you you don't draw attention to yourself. So I presume that was sort of Robin and Colin's thinking about you know just using their, their camera phones. Yes uh, and uh, as we then heard from Colin uh, he noticed a silver van pulling up and almost immediately getting out of that van were two individuals we now know to be the tactical team uh, the men dressed as Gardaí and, and brandishing AK-47 rifles so Colin, with his vast experience, he he would know that Gardaí don't typically uh, carry AK-47s. So he he said that he knew almost in- instantly that these men were not Gardaí. So he took the photos with his phone uh, of these two men going in to the Regency Hotel. Yeah, so the I mean that's a very strong point by Colin the Kalashnikov style rifle. It's a very distinctive rifle, and you know Colin would know. I think most journalists on the beat in Dublin would know that Gardaí don't carry any weapons like that. So I suppose that's how I knew right away that this wasn't Gardaí. And obviously they were wearing tactical gear because they had Kevlar helmets and they they did appear to be Gardaí, but I think that gave it away very quickly that they weren't real Gardaí. Yep. 
And it wasn't long uh, but before it was pretty clear to everybody that they weren't Gardaí because shots were fired as soon as these men went into the hotel. And Colin told the court today that he could hear the shots um, and that it, he heard many shots following that. Um, so he you know, was in a precarious position, but he stayed where he stayed. And uh, as he told the court, these two men eventually came back out and he was face to face with them. And he didn't know what was going on. He didn't know what they were there for. So he said that he was in fear of his life at that point. And he put his hands up and he, he said, I don't know where I'm supposed to be, guard. Because even though rationally in his head, I suppose, he knew they weren't guards, he was still behaving as though, okay, maybe they're guards and maybe I'm in the way or whatever. But as he admitted, and it was quite harrowing evidence that um, at that moment in time, he was in fear for his life. So, Paul, the, the next witness was another photographer, a man called Ernie Leslie. Yeah, so Ernie uh, was uh, working for the Sunday World that day and he was with a journalist uh, named Alan Sherry and he gave evidence of how uh, they took photographs uh, on the day as well and he took photographs of the man uh, we now know identified as, as Flat Cap and he took those photographs uh, from, from the car park of the Regency Hotel. So that was kind of the the, word, the evidence insofar as the journalistic presence at the Regency. Um, and then we moved on uh, to a man by the name of James McGettigan. So uh, James McGettigan, he was the director of the Regency Hotel uh, in February 2016. And as the court heard, his family owns uh, uh, the Regency Hotel. Um so he, like many, many others, were there in the hotel on the day. He was doing his day-to-day -day work, as he told the court. And uh, the next thing he witnessed were the gunmen coming in and making their way towards the bar area. So he described what he said was pandemonium that ensued, because there was panic and there was chaos when these, when these gunmen approached. And he told basically how uh, one of them came into the bar area and told everybody to get down on the ground. Um, and he was standing next to one of the gunmen. Uh, with the, this is one of the gunmen dressed uh, as a guard with an AK-47 rifle. And uh, like Colin, he was trying to assume that these men were guardy, and he was looking and waiting for this particular individual to identify himself as a guarda, and that identification never came. Uh, and as he mentioned, uh, he kind of wasn't able to see this individual's face but the longer he spent staring at him he was able to size up that he was probably a man in his 20s of reasonably slim build um so that was the extent of what he witnessed uh before he said that he was able to look through the window and actually see the reception area the foyer area of the regency hotel and he witnessed what we now know to be the moment when when David Byrne was first shot, uh, he, he, he could hear the shot and he could hear, uh, he could see some sort of, uh, some sort of chaos happening around the reception desk area. And the man that was in his presence with the AK-47, he said, had moved off at this point. So he says, he, he did, he says, I acted kind of naively and uh, he moved, he ran towards a room and he locked the door behind himself and he tried to call Gardaí. Um, what happened then? Could he get through to the Gardaí? He couldn't get through to the Gardaí. Uh, th this is something we've known before. Uh, there were difficulties contacting guards that day uh, initially. Uh, he made the first phone call. He said that he was on hold. He just couldn't get through. He made a second phone call. He couldn't get through. And I think on the third attempt, he said that he was finally able to get through uh, to Gardaí. So that was about the extent uh, of, of his evidence. Okay. And w w what was the next evidence? 
So ne- next up, we had uh, Detective Garda Patrick Fagan. He was from Crumlin Garda Station. And he was telling how he was basically on duty that day. He was called to the Regency Hotel and he met with the uh, the deputy state pathologist, Dr. Michael Curtis, who we heard from uh, later this afternoon. Um, and his job was basically to identify the body. He told the court that he went into the tent and he formally identified uh, the person who was lying on the on the ground dead as David Byrne. And he would have known he would, David Byrne. To explain, Mr. Mr. Byrne would have been from within the Crumlin Garda district. So the detective would have been able to identify him because he would have had he would have known of him and known him yes uh, and following that then we heard from another member of Angarda Shiakana it was a, a Sergeant Ronan McMorrow um, and he was telling how he attended the area went up to around the, the, the centre of the shop area there where some of the emergency services had arrived following the, the shooting incident and he noticed a fellow that was injured on the ground, a fellow we know uh, quite well, uh, name is Sean McGovern. You might be able to contextualise a bit just quickly, Mick, as to who Sean McGovern is. Sean McGovern would have been a, a, a key friend, I suppose, of David Byrne and subsequent to the murder of David Byrne, uh, a lot of things happened and Sean McGovern ended up in Dubai and there is currently a European arrest warrant out for Sean McGovern for a very, very serious crime. The guards have asked for his extradition. Now, Mr. as I say, Mr. McGovern is in Dubai, so there's no extradition between Ireland and Dubai. But we, we do know that negotiations are taking place with the Dubai government and they have been for quite some time. There's high level diplomacy to get Mr McGovern sent from Dubai to Ireland. Now there is precedent for this because you can think of there's a man called Raffaele Imperiale who would have been an associate of uh, Daniel Kennan and he was kicked out of Dubai and sent to Italy for mafia charges. So you know the, the Irish authorities are working away in the background to get Mr McGovern sent back to Ireland. So he would have been and he has been named as a very significant player in the whole Kennan cartel. Mm-hmm. Now, none of that was heard in court today. He was just mentioned by name. Um, but uh, as has been mentioned in the first podcast, this uh, this is the special criminal court. So we do have a little bit more leniency in terms of explaining a bit of the background as to who these individuals are. But anyway, we heard that Sean McGovern was injured, that he had been shot in the abdomen or what appeared to be the abdomen. And uh, the, the guard, um, Sergeant Ronan McMorrow, attempted to speak to Sean McGovern and he was more or less cut off um, by another individual, uh, uh, Greg McGovern, who was there, who specifically told him to fuck off, is what he told the court. And Sean McGovern wasn't interested in speaking with him either, so he pretty much promptly left the scene after that. But that gives you an insight, I suppose, into the, you know, we have heard that there were there was a crowd of people about. So, and, you know, Mel Crystal gave his evidence yesterday. He was talking about mayhem. Mr. McGettigan gave his evidence today. He was talking about chaos and panic. So you can just imagine we're starting to get a picture of just how chaotic it was before, during and after the shooting. Yeah, I mean, it was just a scene of complete panic. And I mean, as Colin O'Reardon mentioned as well uh, in his evidence, uh, I mean, he attempted to stick around, take photographs, and, and he was kind of told, get the hell out of here. Um, so uh, there was a lot of anger and chaos and emotion. And I mean, people probably thought they were in the midst of a of a terrorist attack or whatever. People didn't know exactly the extent as to what had just happened. Now, uh, there's been a lot of... Uh oral evidence and in other words an awful lot of people have given their version of what they saw and their their memory of what they saw but i believe 
that there were there was some CCTV evidence that was also produced for the court today. Yes, uh, so we we got into some of the CCTV evidence today, and we were able to see uh, some of the goings on inside the Regency Hotel and outside the Regency Hotel on the afternoon of the fifth of February. And a lot of the initial footage focused on the man in the flat cap who was later identified as Kevin Murray, uh, since deceased, and the man in drag, the man wearing the long blonde wig, was also uh, heavily featured in this footage. So, the, you know, I don't want to repeat too much of what people know, but we witnessed uh, these two individuals circling the hotel, their arm in arm together and uh the the individual with the with the with the wig on the individual who's dressed in drag is is constantly on the phone we heard and you can see in the footage appears to have the phone right up to their ear as uh mr murray is kind of leading them arm in arm through the hotel so they appear to be kind of circling each and every room they go through the corridors they go through the ballroom and they appear to be looking for somebody uh, we saw a lot of footage uh, of them going through the hotel, as I mentioned, and then we saw footage of a man running out of the hotel and, and kind of looking over his shoulder, like as if he's running away from somebody and running into the car park. And the court heard that the, the two individuals, uh, the man in drag and the man with the flat cap, were not too far behind this other individual uh, going through the hotel. Do we know who that individual was? Did, was it said who that individual was? It wasn't, no. So later in the afternoon, we, we, we broke for lunch and later in the afternoon, uh, there was a break in terms of showing the CCTV footage so that they could facilitate another witness in the case, which was the uh, the then deputy state pathologist, uh, Dr. Michael Curtis. He was deputy state pathologist at the time in 2016. And he told how he attended the scene on the 5th of February that evening and he was brought into the tent and he was uh, told by, by a guard officer there uh, that the deceased was a David Byrne. And he was able to just kind of see, you know, the basic setup of the scene and how the individual had died. But he didn't perform his proper examination, his post-mortem examination until the next day. And we heard, which we're not going to get into too much detail in this podcast because it's quite gruesome, I think. And it doesn't make for a great listening. But we heard uh, in great detail um, the level of injuries, the wounds that David Byrne suffered. What I could basically sum it up as saying is, like he 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 suffered six uh bullet wounds uh from the head all the way down his body his legs his hand um so he was shot quite a number of times uh, across his body uh catastrophic injuries they were described as 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 being and we did hear that uh, his death would have been instantaneous would have been quick uh he wouldn't have been lying there on the ground suffering he was essentially uh, dead from the moment that he was shot um, what was interesting is that, as you know, Mick, the family of David Byrne have been present in court the entire time. Uh, but on this particular occasion, when the evidence of, of the deputy state pathologist is being heard, uh, the, the mother of David Byrne, Sadie Byrne, she'd actually left the courtroom at this stage. She wasn't sitting there for this evidence. But uh, the father, uh, James Jaws Byrne, as we know him, he sat there and he listened uh, to the entire graphic evidence that was being heard about how his son was murdered. It, it listen. It must be hard for the family. That's their loved one, and it's always very hard for any family members in any murder trial to hear how their loved one died. So it must have been very hard for Mister and Mrs. Byrne. Absolutely, um, and and not only did we hear about the the catastrophic injuries that Mister Byrne suffered, we would later uh, watch the actual CCTV footage of him being shot, uh, which again is quite dramatic. You see the tactical team coming back through the 
front entrance of the hotel so you've got the the three men dressed as guardi with ak-47 rifles identified as tactical one two and three and you see the first one go in he goes in to the bar area and the other two come in together they seem to run straight for david byrne and david byrne is shot you see you can see whatever way they cut the, the footage you can just see the the feet of david byrne on the ground and you can see the gunman going over to him and then there's another angle following that where you can see uh the man that's identified as tactical two getting up on top of the reception desk and looking down at david byrne and as we know uh, when he got down off the table he fired several more shots into david byrne um so that as we know he was he once he had identified his target uh, he fired further shots into him so it's one thing to hear it it's another thing to 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 see it it's it's quite dramatic like even when these gunmen are coming in through the front entrance there are people running out around them and past them uh you know the chaos is still going on there's still people fleeing the hotel as these gunmen are coming in back in because they'd already been in so they're coming back in again uh in order to find their target so it's quite it was quite dramatic the CCTV footage. Extremely, extremely, and there there's there's far more. I mean, uh, by the time we got to about four o'clock in the afternoon, um, basically the court heard uh from the prosecution that there's much more CCTV evidence to be heard, uh, to be seen. Uh, we we have uh plenty of CCTV footage yet to see in relation to the cars, the vehicles that were used, and the individuals. Uh, who were driving them and where they brought them and some of that evidence pertains to the other two accused you've got Jason Bonney and you've got Paul Murphy uh, who were alleged to have been involved in the uh, driving of two of the vehicles uh, used uh, to help the gang get away uh, so we've yet to hear and see all of that evidence um, but as as mentioned at the start of this podcast there were a lot of witnesses and a lot of evidence already heard today um, and there's plenty more to hear tomorrow and did the did the court hear what the evidence would be tomorrow? Well, as I said, we're going to see more CCTV footage in relation to the vehicles. Uh, I don't know in terms of what other uh, witnesses yet, uh, but the no doubt as you as we know, there's there were two hundred plus people in the building that day, so there's plenty of witnesses yet to be called. Uh, it's it's worth it's worth mentioning just the kind of a funny thing that was pointed out to me actually just. After the fact that uh, Jerry Hutch actually came out with a cushion for himself today, <laughs> that he was just trying to keep himself comfortable. And one thing that I definitely noticed in terms of his body language is that he uh, he never kept his face away from any of the footage. He was like a hawk watching every single piece of footage that was shown. He continued to watch it. Um, and it's quite remarkable, you know, knowing the history of this feud and everything that we've covered to watch Jerry the Monk Hutch sitting there watching uh, the murder of David Byrne taking place on the screen, you know, just to uh, just to witness that um, and to see that uh, was was interesting. And would he still be wearing the rather large headphones that I saw him with yesterday? Still wearing them. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that must be that he can so they can he can hear properly. OK, so that's day two wrapped up. So there's, as you say, Paul, thank that that's great reporting but there is plenty more evidence to come and even plenty more cctv which and we will know more details of, of what is played to the court tomorrow